Good to see everybody. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Book of Romans, chapter 2. Now, every week I like to kind of get the new folks up to speed. It's kind of rude just to jump in and they're left thinking, where are we? What are we doing? Who is this guy? I don't know what they're thinking, but... All right. This evening we find ourselves in the first main section of the book of Romans. Uh, this first section falls under the heading of condemnation because in it Paul wants to prove that the whole world, the whole, the whole human race apart from Christ is condemned by God. And we know from so many other places in Scripture that what that means is that God is eventually going to judge this world. God's eventually going to judge this world. Psalm 9, verse 7, you have to turn to these. But Psalm 9, verse 7, But the Lord has prepared his throne for judgment. Psalm 96, 13, For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Give you one more, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And guys, this is just a few of hundreds of verses we could look at throughout the Bible that tell us that God is going to someday judge the world. Now, not everybody believes that. I mean, all true evangelical Christians do, but not everybody believes that God's going to judge the world. In fact, Turn to 2 Peter 3. I want to read you something Peter said. In fact, he prophesied of this very thing. 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 1. He said, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and are of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. What Peter is alluding to, I'm not sure he knew all the terms because, you know, kind of talking about modern terms. But what we know he was talking about is a doctrine known as uniformitarianism. That since the world came into existence, not everybody believes it was created. Obviously, there's a lot of scientists out there that believe a big explosion brought everything forth. But I think most scientists believe that Everything has just continued evolving as opposed to what? As opposed to what we believe, which is catastrophism. That God has brought catastrophes on the earth, judgments. And Peter says, you know, of this, they're willfully ignorant. He goes on, verse 5, this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. P 
Peter is saying, look, of this they're willfully ignorant. God has judged the world once already. It's called the flood, the great flood of Noah's day. He's already proven. And of course, the whole world was repopulated from Noah's three sons. And every culture has in its history a flood story. Uh, it takes little variations, but major cultures that have existed throughout history, they all had a flood story in their history. That's because it was passed down from Noah's sons to all the folks that eventually were, and of course their children passed it down to their children. Peter says, look, they know that God has already intervened in the history of the world to bring judgment once where he flooded the world. Remember the rainbow in Noah's day. What was that a symbol of? A sign of a covenant, right? The Noahic covenant. What did that mean? That God was, he promised he was never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. Folks don't read the fine print. Peter says, well, but verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So God's going to judge the world again. Since Noah's day, there's only been that worldwide judgment. The Bible says another one's coming. God has judged different peoples and nations and many times in the past. We're talking about a global event, a global catastrophe. This judgment, guys, is given many different titles in Scripture. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it is spoken of as the time of Jacob's trouble. In Romans 2, verse 5, it's referred to as the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In 2 Peter 3, verse 7, it's called the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In Jude, verse 6, it's referred to as the judgment of the great day. Revelation 6, 17 puts it this way, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I don't care what you call it. It goes by many different titles. Know this, the one thing is that is clear, there is a day of judgment coming. Not a literal 24-hour day. This is a, a day in the sense of a, a period of time. We know the Bible calls it the tribulation period, when once again God will judge the world. Now this bothers a lot of people because they have the mindset, well, come on, God's a God of love. Certainly a God of love will not judge the world. First of all, let me just say this about God. Yes, he is a God of love. But if you're banking on his love as the thing that's going to keep him from judging sinners, you got that wrong. Can I say this? God wants to save sinners. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. But there's a lot of people that believe that because God is love, he's not going to judge the wicked. Can I just say this to you? God's love can't save you. In fact, God's love has never saved anybody. All God's love can do is provide a way by which you might be saved. And that way is a person, his son, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to God. The Father gets to heaven apart from me. And let me just say this. 
You come to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior, and he promises to wash all your sins away, to put your name in heaven, where you'll have a place reserved for you when you die or the rapture occurs. Refuse him, reject him as your Savior. Again, the only one who can save you from the wrath to come, God's coming judgment, and you will die in your sins and reap eternal judgment. That's a personal level thing. But as far as God judging the world someday, listen, the world is under the control of Satan. It happened in the Garden of Eden when God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. He said, take care of it. It will bring forth on its own. You won't have to toil. It'll just happen. I am putting you in over the earth as its guardians. But of course, when Satan took the form of a serpent, beguiled Eve, and she ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he did eat, they fell. But what they didn't realize, I'm convinced at that moment, a transfer happened. They transferred ownership of the world to the devil, who became the world's new owner and man's new master. And that brought into the world all the things that God never intended. This is not the world God intended us to live in. This is a product of man's sin, rebellion. We have to understand that. When God created the world, after every day of creation, Genesis 1, he said, it is good. It is good. God saw that it was good. At the end of the six days, God stepped back from the canvas of his creation and said, it is all good. God created a good world. It's been corrupted by sin and by Satan. Now, unbelievers, when they hear this, go, with it, well, God's God. Why can't he fix it? He is fixing it. He's going to fix it. But he's given people time to choose what kingdom they want to belong to. The kingdom of light, God's kingdom, or the kingdom of darkness, the devil's kingdom. But this world is under the control of the devil who the Bible calls the God of this world, and most of the people in it at the present time are following, or throughout history, are following in the devil's footsteps by living in rebellion against God. Now, if they don't repent and receive Jesus as their Savior, they will be subjected to a worldwide judgment at one point in the future, a judgment designed to purge the world of the earth dwellers. Read Revelation in preparation for Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom. Let me read to you out of 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10, where Paul said, Jesus Christ is coming someday with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who refuse to know God is the idea, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord when he comes in that day, the day of his wrath, his judgment, and so on. Guys, this judgment is described in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Now, Revelation 6 through 19 talks about God's judgment upon the world. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul is talking about a judgment that comes when Jesus returns. And that you can read about in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. When Jesus Christ destroys the Antichrist, his armies, 
who have gathered in the valley of Megiddo to do battle against the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to come. He's going to speak the word, the same word that spoke the universe into existence is going to vaporize his enemies. That will be their first death. That's a physical death. The Bible talks about two, two kinds of death. The first death and the second death. The first death is when a person dies physically. And then a thousand years later, you can read about the second death of unbelievers. In Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment speaks of their second death, which is a spiritual and eternal death. Look, the Bible is absolutely clear, guys, that someday God will judge every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Listen to me now, the just and the unjust. I'm going to say some things tonight that initially you're going to think, uh-oh, did Pastor Phil become a heretic and I wasn't, didn't realize that? Hang with me, all right? Don't jump to conclusions. It's going to sound for a little bit like I'm teaching something that you know I have never taught, okay? But I'm making a point. I want you to understand, I want, I want to kind of come at this from a little different direction that because, you know, you say the same thing in the same way all the time. It just, people close their mind. They're, they've heard it so many times. Let's come around and come at this issue from a slightly different perspective where initially you might be kind of shaken. What is he talking about? You'll see how it fits together as we progress. But let me say it one more time. The Bible is absolutely clear that someday God is going to judge every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth both the just and the unjust. The just shall inherit the kingdom of God, and the unjust will be cast into the lake of fire or hell for eternity. Guys, if judgment is inevitable, and it is, then it's vitally important that we understand, that we all understand what is necessary to escape the judgment that is coming upon the unrighteous. And so that leads to a very important question. If all people will someday face the judgment of God, what will be the criteria by which God will judge? Or, in other words, on what basis will people be condemned and sent to hell forever? And on what basis will people be allowed to enter into heaven forever? Now, guys, I believe that the basis for this divine judgment is given to us by Paul in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. That's why I've kind of laid everything out. I believe that the basis for divine judgment is, give, is given by Paul in the first 16 verses of Romans 2. Because in the first 16 verses, Paul gives six principles that become the basis on which God will judge all people. And here they are. Knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. Now, remember, that this is just one small section of a much larger section, this small section we have entitled Condemnation, which covers chapter 1, verse 18. It runs through chapter 3, verse 20. As we have said before, the theme of Paul's entire epistle, the epistle to the Romans, the theme is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 16. As we have said numerous times during the course of this study, the word gospel means good news good news and yet before a person can receive God's good news they first have to understand and accept the bad news 
And so beginning with chapter 1, verse 18, and going through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul gives his readers the bad news first. <laughs> None of it's pretty. None of it's pretty, okay? No way you could put lipstick on this pig. It's yeah, just not going to happen. It's all bad, very bad. But as I have said, bear with me as I repeat myself, here Paul is acting like a prosecuting attorney who starts by proving that the pagan is condemned or guilty before holy God. Now he starts with the most obvious group first. Everyone would say, of course, the pagan. Sure, you know, there are all kinds of terrible things. Well, okay, Paul lists them first. He then moves to the moralist, the moralist, to show that those who think they're right with God because they live quote-unquote moral lives are hypocrites and guilty. And finally, he turns his focus to the religionist, in this case, the Jews, those who embrace Judaism, to show that keeping the law of God, which is religion, will not save either. The verdict, when he's all finished, all apart from Christ are guilty and condemned. And why is it so important that Paul begins the main body of this epistle? By proving that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ is condemned? Well, as we said it before, let me say it again. Paul was the quintessential evangelist. And he knew before a person will see their need for a Savior, they first must be made to see themselves as sinners. Now, guys, his point in this first section is to prove that fallen man, fallen man, no matter how hard he or she tries to be righteous, is helpless to change their eternal destiny, which is hell. They're helpless to change their eternal destiny through their own raw determination, human effort, and good works. As the saying goes, man has fallen and he can't get up. In other words, Human beings can't change their condition before a holy and righteous God, the holy and righteous God of the universe. They're condemned, fallen sinners, and that is the only way they're going to stay for all eternity. There's no hope. Nothing they can do about it. They are lost, fallen, condemned sinners. But then starting in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins to share with lost sinners the good news. That there is hope in Jesus Christ. That he is the solution. The only solution to man, fallen man's predicament. And that even though, listen now, even though fallen human beings can't be righteous in themselves, righteous at all, not even a little, even though fallen human beings can't be righteous in themselves, the righteousness of Christ, let me say it again, the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to their account by faith, making them worthy of eternal life in God's kingdom. Now, guys, we've already looked at the first three principles of God's coming judgment, knowledge, truth, and guilt, which now brings us to number four on the list, deeds. Deeds. For this, I really want to keen on verse 6, but let's back up and just start reading with verse 1 again. Romans 2, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, 
you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, verse 6, who will render to each one according to his what? Deeds. Deeds. Now, once again, in Revelation 20, again, you have to turn there, verses 11 to 15, where the great white throne judgment is taking place. We studied this a few months ago when we were in Revelation. In Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, 11 to 15, where the great white throne judgment is taking place twice, it says that God is going to judge men and women according to their works. And now in Romans chapter 2, of course, Romans was written before Revelation, but here in Romans chapter 2, Paul is saying the same thing. Now, some would say in light of this, yes, the wicked will be judged by their works because, you know, they rejected Jesus, but not the righteous. I mean, we're saved by grace. Our works have nothing to do with our salvation. Yes and no. Yes and no. Here's where you're starting to think, uh-oh, what happened? Bear with me. Let's explore this idea for a moment, okay? I want you to turn to John 5. But while you're doing that, I'm going to quote to you something Jesus said out of Matthew 16, verse 27. Where he said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. It's interesting, he didn't say he will reward each one according to their faith. He said, no, according to their works. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Maybe you've read that in the past and been a little bit uncomfortable with the language. Wouldn't it be a lot more comfortable if Jesus said, when I come, I'm going to speak the word and the graves are going to open up and all the dead are going to come forth. Those who are believers, who have faith to the resurrection of life. Those who are unbelievers, who did not have any faith to the resurrection of condemnation. He didn't say that. Let me read it again. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, they'll come forward. And those who have done evil will come forward to the resurrection of condemnation. Guys, in both the Old and New Testaments, we are told that God will judge people based on their deeds, their works, both good and bad works. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present with you there in Corinth or absent, we want to be well-pleasing to Jesus. That's the idea. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
The word judgment there in the Greek in verse 10, judgment seat, I should say, is the Greek word bema, bema. And this word was at times used of the judgment seat at an athletic event like the Olympics, where athletes would appear before the judge who was seated on an elevated platform to receive their prize or reward for winning an event. Paul no doubt had this in mind when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul seems to have been a guy who likes sports a lot. He used a lot of sports metaphors. Okay. He said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one, only one, receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And of course, the context is that Paul is admonishing all believers to go all out in their race for Jesus. So that someday they may receive a great reward. However, guys, the word bema was more commonly used in the New Testament to describe, listen now, a judicial judgment seat. A judicial judgment seat. It was used of the judgment seats of Pilate, Matthew 27, verse 19, also in John 19, verse 13. It was used of King Herod's judgment seat. These are judicial judgment seats, not at some athletic competition where people walk up and get their prizes for winning their competition. No, these were judicial seats in the courts of law. Herod's judicial seats mentioned in Acts 12, verse 21, and Festus in Acts 25, verses 6, 10, and 17. There was also a Bema seat at Corinth where unbelieving Jews unsuccessfully accused Paul before the Roman proconsul Galileo. You'll find that in Acts 18, verses 12, 16, and 17. One author points out, he says, and I quote, a person was brought before a bema to have his or her deeds examined in a judicial sense for indictment or for exoneration. Now, I, I wanted to bring this out because my pastor, incredible man of God, loved the Lord. But he always taught us that the bema seat was only for believers. And it was not a punitive judgment seat it was a place where like you would in an athletic competition you go forward and receive your rewards for your time on the earth serving jesus and he made that point every time i heard him teach on this that the bema seat was only for believers and it was just to receive rewards for ministries done on the earth in jesus name here's the thing about us pastors we're not infallible I think some guys think they might be, but I, I know that we're not. So you treat me like the Bereans treated Paul in Acts 17.11. When Paul preached to them from the word, their hearts were open, it says, but then they went home and checked what Paul said against the word of God to make sure he was telling them the truth. As I did some more research on this, when I taught, on this topic. I realize that the New Testament has more occasions where the word bema is used in a judicial sense 
in any other sense. And I bring all this up because I, I have come to realize in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, something else is going on than what I thought originally because my mindset was a Bema seat was only for rewards. Let me read verse 10 again. He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I believe when Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, guys, listen to me now, he has in mind all humanity, not all believers in Christ. All humanity, including unbelievers and believers in Christ. I believe that because he says people are going to have to answer for the things they have done while on the earth, whether good or bad. Now listen, those who will be judged for the good, I believe, is a reference to Christians, for which the judgment seat of Christ will only be for the handing out of rewards. There will be no punitive action taken against us because all of our sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. Our account has been marked paid in full. His blood has washed away all our sins. So for us, the Bama State's going to be all good. Although, probably not without some tears, maybe many tears, over wasted opportunities or lost rewards due to wrong motives. There's a lot of folks who serve Jesus for the wrong motives. They're doing it for recognition. They're doing it to make themselves feel good. Builds their self-esteem. That's what somebody told me years ago. Uh, why they did ministry. It was Sunday school teacher. I said, well, that's the wrong motive. You don't do ministry because it bolsters your fragile self-esteem. You do ministry because you love Jesus. And you only want to honor and glorify him through the work you do. That's all. And if that isn't the motive, then read 1 Corinthians 3 once again because you're going to come up to the altar, the, I'm sorry, Jesus' throne, carrying all your works that you did for him, but you're going to have to pass through fire. And the fire is going to judge what sort of works they were, whether they were done for the glory of Jesus, God, or they were done for the glory of self. And those that were done out of the wrong motives, poof. You're going to walk through the fire. What happened to all my stuff? All my stuff I wanted to lay at Jesus' feet. Well, it's all burned up. Although Paul says quickly, but they themselves will be saved because we're saved by grace. So for us, the Bema seat essentially is going to be a good thing. Although probably some weeping and wailing because I wish I had done more with my life on the earth for Jesus so I had more to lay at his feet and rewards for all eternity. However, the word bad is the Greek word kakos. It just sounds like a bad word. Kakos. In the New Testament, kakos is translated evil or wicked and refers to one, listen, who is evil in himself, through and through, and as such leads others into evil. 
In a moral sense, the word means wicked, vicious, bad in heart, conduct, and character. Folks, there is no way on God's green earth this is talking about a believer. I don't care how backslidden they are. This is talking about an unbeliever. And I believe in this regard, to these folks, the Bema seat of Christ is going to be, yes, totally judicial. Because they didn't accept his payment for their sins, his blood. But they rejected that. Now they got to stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account. I believe this could very well be the great white throne judgment. It's the same Bema seat, Christ. How do we know it's Jesus doing the great white throne judgment? Because John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is going to judge believers, giving us our rewards. But a thousand years later, he is going to resurrect unbelievers. And they will stand before him. These are the bad. There's no good in this group. These are all lost sinners that refuse to repent. And they will stand before him. Again, Revelation 20, verses 11, 15, 11 to 15. And uh, he will pronounce sentence upon each one. They're guilty. And now he is going to sentence each one to their punishment in hell. The whole point of this is to drive home to your, to your understanding that God doesn't judge us on the basis of our profession of faith, what we say we believe. He judges us on the basis of the performance of our faith, how we live what we say we believe. Furthermore, he doesn't judge us on the basis of our religious affiliation, whether we're Roman Catholic, Baptist, Presbyterian, etc. He judges us on the basis of the product of our life, what is being produced in our lives. Again, the issue is not what a person claims to believe. It's not a matter of what church they belong to or how often they attend. It's not a matter of how pious they are. Now, Paul is talking to the Jews who were the example in Romans 2 of a religious person. But today, there's all kinds of folks fit into that category. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And there are some Roman Catholics who are very pious people. They go to Mass every single day of the week. They pray the rosary constantly. They light candles continuously. Uh, they keep feast days and holy days and so on. They're very, very religious. And they think that that is earning them little installments of grace that accrue over time and will purchase their salvation. And Paul wants us to know, it doesn't matter how pious you are, or if you were circumcised or baptized or subjected to any other outward ceremony or ritual in whatever group or denomination you belong to. The real issue is, have you received Jesus as your Savior? And does your life, listen now, attest to that by you living in obedience to God? You see, guys, that is the litmus test, so to speak. That is the litmus test when it comes to true saving faith. As Jesus pointed out, you will know the true from the false by the fruit produced in their lives. You can read uh, 1 John 2 at your leisure. 
where Paul said, excuse me, John said very simply, he said, this is how we know the children of God as opposed to the children of the devil. The children of God keep his commandments. Perfectly? No. But that's the general pattern of their life, whereas the children of the devil, they might do some good here and there, but the general pattern of their life is to live contrary to God's commandments, contrary to his word. And as Paul said to Titus in Titus 1, verse 16, concerning many churchgoers back then and, of course, even today, they profess to know God. They profess to be Christians. But in works, in other words, by the deeds of their lives, they deny him. Turn to Matthew 7. And while you're doing that, I want to read you one verse that Jesus spoke out of Luke 6, verse 46. Where he said to a group of would-be disciples. Now, that's important you understand that. This, he spoke to a group of his followers. Some of them were real, some of them weren't. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? Let's look at Matthew 7, starting with verse 15. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on, in, the, in that day, day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let me stop here and just say this. People get hung up on the fact that these folks prophesy, cast out demons, and work miracles. How could that be an unbeliever? Well, first of all, they think they did those things. It doesn't mean they really did do those things. There are guys on TV that will tell you they're casting out demons every day. They prophesy constantly, working miracles all the time. They think they're doing those things, or maybe they know they're not, but they're lying. But that's going to be their defense on the day of judgment. Lord, we knew you. I was the guy on TV. I made a lot of money for you. Well, actually for me. But I, I use your name a lot. And what is Jesus going to tell them? I what? Never knew you. Never knew you. These were unbelievers. Verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What is the Lord saying? Let me just paraphrase. And let me just put it in this, this way. 
you got two guys. They both go to the same church. They both hear the same word taught. Let's say it's a good church, an evangelical church that teaches the Bible in truth. Two people, both hear the same word of God. One hears and obeys, the other hears and does not obey. And then Jesus took the principle and made it into a parable. He says it's like two men that built their house on two different foundations. One dug deep and built his house on the rock. And when the storms came, judgment, his house, his faith stood. Why? Because it was built on the rock. Obedience was real. Whereas the other guy built his house on the sand, his faith. It wasn't really built on the word of God. It was shifting, right? And when judgment comes, his faith is going to crumble because it wasn't real. It wasn't built on obedience. The key, guys, is true faith is demonstrated through obedience to what God has said. And those who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, who don't live in obedience to him, they are fooling themselves. Their faith isn't real. Because true saving faith always manifests itself in obedience. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they do what? Follow me. They're obedient. Now, guys, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The works aren't a condition for attaining salvation. They are the evidence of a person having salvation. Let me say it again. We're talking about obedience as one of the works that demonstrates how a person's faith is genuine. Works aren't a condition for attaining salvation. They don't get you saved. But they are the evidence that a person is saved. Again, Jesus said that we would know if a person was a Christian by the fruits produced from their life. Look, I am not a, a dendrologist. What's a dendrologist? That's somebody who studies trees. If you were to take me into a, an orchard, a tree farm, we'll say, in the dead of winter, and you told me in this tree farm there are apple trees and oak trees, I'd like you to point out which ones are the apple trees out of this whole group. I couldn't tell you an oak tree from an apple tree. But if you give me about five months, when summer comes, I'll walk in there and pick out all the apple trees right away. Why? Because they got apples hanging off them. Here's the point. The apples don't make it an apple tree. They prove it is an apple tree. The good works don't make us Christians. They prove we are Christians. That's the, that's the bottom line here, right? And so Paul in Romans 2 verse 6 is saying that God will judge us not on the basis of what we say, what we profess, but on the basis of how we live. In other words, what is produced in our lives. Again, I'm not saying that we get to heaven on the basis of our deeds. The Bible is very clear about this. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, Salvation is a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. But then Paul went on to say in Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, listen, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul said to Titus, We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, listen, zealous for good works. Look, don't get me wrong. And here I might lose some of you again. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying that the wicked are sent to hell on the basis of their evil deeds. You say, no, wait a minute. It's like you're contradicting yourself. Hear me out. John 3, verse 16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell but would have everlasting life. Verse 36. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the judgment of God, abides on him. The Bible is very clear. A person gets to heaven or goes to hell on the basis of whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, period. But the works they do, in other words, how they live their life from day to day, indicates whether or not they truly do believe, whether or not their faith is genuine true saving faith or not jesus said in matthew 3 verse 8 i'm sorry this is john the baptist said in matthew 3 verse 8 therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance if there is true repentance turning away of the old life coming to jesus there's going to be fruit you'll know them by the fruit a changed life is the greatest testimony that a person is saved we all know that right I mean, none of us are where we want to be, but we're certainly not what we once were. We are a work in progress. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, well, did they? They said they did. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples truly. The word abide means to continue. By the way, continuance in the faith is one of the fruits of true salvation. But anyways, let me just say this. Once a person is saved by faith, the good deeds they do in Jesus' name will determine, listen now, the degree of their rewards in heaven. Let me say it again. Once a person is saved by faith, the good deeds they do in Jesus' name while living on the earth will determine the degree of their reward in heaven. Likewise, if a person rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior, the bad deeds they did on earth during their lifetime will determine the degree, the severity of their punishment in hell. But good works don't get a person into heaven, and bad works don't send them to hell. It's a matter of whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. You get to heaven because you believe in Christ. You go to hell because you reject Christ. So then good works, bad works have nothing to do with anything? Of course they do. Good works as a Christian will determine your degree of, of reward in heaven. And bad works of an unbeliever will de determine their degree of punishment in hell. We're done, but let me close by saying this. Again, how do we know if a person really believes in Jesus or not? Well, by the deeds of their life. Of course, guys, God knows the heart, right? Uh, Hebrews 4.13 all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. God knows the heart. 
God knows those who belong to him. He knows whether or not uh, whether or not they truly believe or whether their so-called faith is nothing more than a facade. 2 Timothy 2.19, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. So then, if he knows, why is he going to judge us based on our works then? If he knows the heart, what's all this talk of judging us based on good works and bad works? Believers, unbelievers. He tells us that obedience to his word is the only outward way we can see true faith in the heart. Let me put it this way. Say I had up here a table, and on the table I had two pots exactly the same filled with dirt. And I said to you, in one of the pots there's a seed. The other pot has no seed. Tell me which pot has the seed. Well, I don't know. I can't see into the pot. I can't see into the dirt. But if you let me water the pots for a few days, put them out in the sun, give me a few days and I'll tell you which one had the seed. How? By what pokes his way up out of the dirt. Faith is like that. Faith planted in the heart is invisible. God sees it. God knows. But we don't always know even. So how can we know if... Saving faith is in a person's heart by what pokes its way up out of their life. Good works. Now, guys, listen. He does that solely for our benefit. Because how are we going to, as the Bible says, examine yourself to make sure you're really saved? Make sure that, don't wait until the judgment day to hear Jesus. Oh, I never knew you. Oh, oh, can you give me a few minutes, Lord, so I can go and repent and get things right? No. Examine yourself right now to make sure you are really in the faith. How do you do that? What kind of works are, are coming out of my life? If I profess faith in Jesus and my life hasn't really changed at all, I may go to church once in a while now, but that's about it. I'm still do, hanging with the old crowd, doing the old things and so on. If you're honest with yourself, you'd have to say, well, look, I don't see any change really. All right, good. At least you're honest. Now get in your knees, confess your sins, and receive Christ in truth while there's still time. And of course, the good works for a Christian, the works that we do, the fruit that is born in our lives is counteracting the works of the flesh. So the fruit of the Spirit hopefully is growing and developing and becoming stronger and, and, and lusher and everything else. How can I determine where I am in my walk with the Lord? How far along am I? Well, how much are you growing? Have you been growing more like Jesus and less like your old self, the world? That's why the Bible says that God judges on the basis of works or deeds. It's not for his benefit, it's for ours. And nobody can say on the day of judgment, well, no, Lord, you're mistaken. There are some people that are so narcissistic, when they stand before Jesus and hear, I never knew you. Oh, well, no, you're, could you please check the list again? Because I know I'm in, I, you're mistaken, Lord. Gabriel, fire up the jumbotron. <laughs> Show them their life. Fast motion. Your works don't indicate you, you ever believed. Now, I know you, Jesus, but I know your heart. 
but you should have looked at your life and, and decided for yourself you were playing games. And that's a bad thing to do. So that if you honestly examined yourself, your life, and you saw that things were not changing for the better, you were not really becoming more like Jesus, you would have had time to repent, get your life right with me. But now it's too late. Guys, again, we're done. Works, or as we've called it, deeds, God judges us based on our deeds, are the truest test of what a person believes. Not what they claim to believe, but what they actually believe. Now, starting in verse 7 and running through verse 10, Paul examines those deeds and distinguishes between the deeds of true believers in Christ and those of false believers who think they're in Christ, which we'll look at next time. Let me just close with a short story. I think it was last year, maybe the year before, in our book of the quarter, we read Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. He made an interesting observation in that book. It was an allegory, right? But it was, a, it was an allegory of the Christian life. But he made something... He made a statement that I've never forgotten. I think a lot of people have never forgotten. Here's what he said. He noticed as Christian, and I think it was faithful, reached the celestial city. He noticed that there was a, how did he put it, an entrance to hell even from the gates of heaven. Think about that. What does that mean? So a lot of people who believe they're on their way to heaven. Why? Because they are very religious. They light candles, they go to church, they pray the rosary, and my Catholicism is coming out. That, this is what I know. This is how I grew up. They don't realize that as they believe they're on the road to heaven, it really is leading them into the very gates of hell. As we said Sunday, Satan is a master deceiver who comes like an angel of light to deceive. And the only way we will know whether something is a religious system is truth or a lie is how does it stack up with the word of God. Otherwise, we could be very deceived thinking you're on the road to heaven and stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me. You who practice what? lawlessness your works weren't there your deeds will not condemn you because the pattern of your life was rebellion was disobedience not obedience to what i said amen so we'll god willing pick this up next week in romans 2 father we thank you for your great love that sent jesus to die for us we thank you lord that you've opened our eyes to your truth and i believe lord Many, if not most in this room, have received you into their hearts. If there's anybody here this evening who has not truly opened their heart to you, maybe they grew up in a religion. Maybe they grew up like I did in Roman Catholicism. There's a lot of wonderful people in Roman Catholicism that work every day to earn their salvation. But if they don't repent, someday they will realize that Although they thought they were going to enter into heaven, they entered the gate of hell right there 
at the entrance to heaven. In other words, they went to church thinking that they were right, but going to hear someday how they were absolutely wrong. Give us grace, Lord, to keep walking in your truth. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.